Well, a few weeks ago, I, an Anglican priest, obviously, and my friend Aaron, who is a postmodern progressive philosophy professor, we started riding mountain bikes with a Zen Buddhist named Dustin from Maryland, whom Aaron met in a mountain biking Facebook group. So uh, Heather already laughed. It sounds like the setup for a joke, doesn't it? Right? A priest, a philosopher, and a Buddhist all started riding mountain bikes together. So we've actually been having a great time. Uh, The conversations between our huffing and puffing up the mountain have been interesting to say the least. And as tends to happen these days, the conversation turned to politics and social media. And having just returned from Nepal a few weeks ago, Dustin said, he said, I think crowds are just a problem in general. Crowds are a problem in general, online or otherwise. And not surprisingly, he felt or expressed that he felt that people should be focusing personally on self-awareness and discovery, not in groups oriented toward broader issues and, uh, and pursuits. So with Pentecost right around the corner, I couldn't help but think of the story of Babel in Genesis 11. So I brought it up, pointing out how the story validates humanity's collective determination when unified, while also exposing the dangers of that kind of unity. And I said, it just depends on what unifies people, what makes them a crowd, and to what ends. Dustin said he was familiar with the story, but he never heard this particular take on it. So I went on to link it up with the story of Pentecost in Acts 2, which Christians have historically understood as a kind of reversal of Babel, redeeming the unity of humanity and refocusing humanity toward blessing and freedom, not prestige and power. And Dustin was intrigued by this. We both agreed that either way, crowds are powerful, but they're risky. And that ideally, individuals will bring a deep sense of self-awareness and thoughtfulness to their connections, to the crowds of which they're a part. Sadly, the philosopher, Aaron, was struggling with allergies that day, and he was a half mile behind us down the mountain. So I would have loved to know what he had to say about all of this. But this morning, I want to expand on this relationship between Babel and Pentecost on the power of redeemed unity and talk about what it means for us individually and together in our day. The Babel Project, this was a concerted effort of a city-building clan or group of clans to build a walled city with a ziggurat in the middle, which was a tower like those that you find or that, that were known to have been built during the Akkadian dynasty of the 24th through the 22nd centuries BC. And in fact, Akkad is mentioned in Genesis 10. And based on archaeological discoveries, this people group is likely to have been among the most formidable ancient Mesopotamians, um, particularly or especially after uniting with the Sumerians into one bilingual people. They were Semitic like Abraham, and they may have been the very people stacking these bricks to heaven. But why were they doing this? What were they up to? Now, as a meeting place for men with gods, a tower like this, a ziggurat, would provide just an undeniable symbol of power and prestige. And with it, they hoped to make a name for themselves, it says, among the other nations uh, in verse 4. So this tower in this walled city, it would communicate to the people of both the city, it would communicate to the people of the surrounding region that they possess 
that therein can be found a kind of transcendence to go with the sense of security and permanence that they could hope for in a walled city. Now, a city in the ancient world, whether it was large or small, was only a city if it had protective walls. Okay? That's what defined a city. So their goal was an attractive and formidable culture center that could offer protection. It could offer a kind of stability with the sponsorship of the gods. God or gods. The Akkadians had many gods. If we can avoid getting dispersed all over, they, they might say, we can consolidate strength. Everyone will want to visit or they'll want to stay here. Everyone will be talking about us if we succeed. And verses 5 and following are all kinds of interesting. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It's, it's a bit funny, really. It's kind of ironic because despite their assumptions and their efforts, the Lord is not accommodating their fancy tower, but observing it from without in the story. It's interesting. In Acts 7, the deacon evangelist Stephen, he had to remind his fellow Jews that the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. But they even loved their prestigious stack of bricks more than they were meant to. And by the way, they stoned Stephen for saying things like this. But there's something deeper going on in this building and in this project. In Genesis 2, back at creation, humanity was, actually, was created with consciousness and purpose to dwell in and to care for sacred space. An overlap of heaven and earth. A meeting place for God and man. So it's instinctive to build such things. You might say the Garden of Eden, which simply means pleasure or delight. It was a temple throughout which God would walk with and commune with its priests, so to speak. And it was good, God said many times. And that word for good in Genesis, tobah, doesn't mean it was nice. Tobah is a superlative. It means it was best. It was right. It was ordered. It was whole. Shalom. But we know, sadly, the, the man and the woman, uh, they were cast out of the garden precisely for denying that God's order was right and whole and best just as he had made it. They wanted it otherwise. And what does humanity do a few chapters and generations later? They're building an alternative Eden, including a place for some God or another in it, but this time on their terms. Do you see that? In some deep sense, the people, they still know what they're made for. We still know what we're made for. But it's been distorted by their alienation, by our alienation from God. Yet we still build. And verse 6 of Genesis 11 says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So what does the Lord do? The Lord declares an immutable principle here, a truth with all the corresponding power that attends anything that's actually true. Whether it's bent toward good or evil, if it's true, it coheres, it lasts. Regardless of what unites humans, the effort here will be inherently formidable. If they can communicate well, if they can agree and imitate then something uniquely powerful will result because it's baked in. They're connected in ways beyond their consciousness. 
to the French philosopher and social scientist uh, René Girard, he recognized the power of our imitative and connective nature, particularly the way we imitate, even when we don't think we are. And so he gleaned from the insights of uh, history's great anthropologists and novelists and, and from religious traditions and even scientists, and he developed the idea of the mimetic, mimesis, to describe the way we actually, whether we're aware of it or not, we depend on cues from one another to shape our culture and our self-understanding. Does that make sense? His theory is that even the innermost desires that we believe are so uniquely ours, it's, it's, it's mine, they're actually borrowed in some sense. They're connected. That our sense of I is really always a composite we, for good or ill. And Girard, he used the nursery as a classic example of this principle. He asked this, how is it that two children, two, not four, two children, surrounded by a multitude of toys, will almost always end up fighting over the same one. Each child will be convinced that they saw it first, completely unaware that the only reason they're interested in the toy in the first place is the modeled desire of the other child. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, we witnessed it. We only had two, and I used to say all the time, I wish we'd had three to just triangulate the angst a little bit. <laughs> But this is interesting, and his point is we're indelibly connected at depths that we can't begin to plumb. There's no pulling us apart. There's no pulling that reality apart. There is only redeeming our connection and repointing our collective and our mimetic natures toward ends that are worthy of our God-given purpose. Verse 7 says this, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there for, uh, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So I think the first thing we need to pay attention to right there in verses 7 through 9 is the plural reference to God here. The innate connectedness and the way it invokes the same kind of let us language of creation in Genesis 1:26 that says let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule I think we're meant to see actually the relationship here between the holy divine unity of the creator and the unholy human unity of Babel the contrast of God's usness, which is a perfect plural unity, a, a trinity, triunity. And we're meant to remember that people are imago dei, made in the image of God, uniquely imbued with God likeness as icons invested with a potential for powerful unity and connection. Yet in this picture, the holy usness of God responds to the misguided usness of humanity, the distortion. The image of God right there in this picture is distorted in mass. The picture of God's unity is distorted in mass. And so the triune God is taking responsibility over what he has created and empowered. Their distorted unity could mean the rise of a place. Think about this. A place where the effects of their idolatrous pride are exacerbated, concretizing them in ways that always advance injustice and corruption in the middle of their blind spots. 
Over and over through history, we see this among empires. This is why you see over and over again in Scripture, basically without exception, that cities are a problematic Compelling, powerful, but they're problematic. They're suspect insofar as they represent projects of human achievement divorced from divine purpose. Instead of being places that are gathered to glorify God and demonstrate that glory in human expression, they become an end in themselves for human vanity. Instead of their towers and their buttresses pointing our eyes and affections to the heavens in wonder and humility, they distract us with artifacts of our own achievement, with ourselves. So Babel really kind of serves as an archetypal story. Not less than historical, but more than that. Our cities are impressive marvels, if you think about it, of cultural, creative, technological, and economic genius. Why? Because it's the imago dei at work in us. When we get together, amazing things can happen. But our cities also continue to be centers of devastating idolatry, collecting and enculturating the system, systemic problems of desperate hearts trying to find something more, make something more, trying to find transcendence and permanence and peace anywhere but in God trying to remake Eden according to what we think is best. Tobah. Paul picks this theme up uh, in his letter to those living in the city of Rome. The problem is not a lack of worship, he says, but a misdirected worship. We are going to worship. We have to. It's in us. But in all kinds of ways, we put the creation, not the creator, at the center of our worship. So historic decadence, whether it's Babel or Athens, Rome, or Washington, always stems from culture built on materialism and sensualism, on the everyday impulse to do what? Think about it. To elevate our own ends as self-justifying and our own desires as undeniable. And we build cities as emblems of that, as icons of our own image. But as I put it earlier, the Lord is still exerting responsibility and care over what He has made and empowered. The Gospel tells us the Lord came down again in the midst of humanity's errant and decadent project, didn't He? But this time He became one with us, one of us, taking on flesh and speaking human language and identifying with, forgiving and healing us, providing hope for us beyond death. And then what happens? As He ascends, He promises that at Pentecost, the Lord would come again by His Spirit. And the thing is, the Spirit's presence and power had once, that had once only been impersonal or selective, it, come, you know, it had only come for special people or purposes. Now it is, according to the prophecy of Joel, it is to be poured out on all flesh. On sons and daughters, on the young and old, on the rich and the poor, from every tribe and tongue and nation. The Spirit came to empower in all manner of work and expression Every person on whom the Spirit fell. All kinds of gifting, all kinds of contribution, not just priestly, ceremonial, or miracle-working roles. But even the mundane. In fact, what comes to be defined as priestly gets recovered because it gets broadened dramatically. In Eden, you could tend a bush and be a priest. 
And some of you said yes and amen. Some of you more agrarian types among us, I know. The crunchy types. Crunchy priests. So through His unifying Spirit, friends, God recreates. He gathers humanity for worship and for renewed stewardship of the world He loves and over which He is ultimately responsible. He connects us for redeemed city building. God doesn't hate cities, and I'm going to prove it in just a minute. He instead gives us the heart and the ways of Christ to imitate and to reflect to others in the things we make, in our cities, in our gatherings, in our crowds. And because of the Spirit, the temple of God is actually wherever the people of God go. We don't need towers or buildings. This is the incredibly powerful and subversive thing that Pentecost does. As Paul told the Ephesians, for through Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Do you see this? Do you see it? I mean, by the Spirit, that nagging desire for transcendence and reconnection with the holy is fulfilled. By the Spirit, our God-given and mimetic and kinetically creative instincts are redeemed and redirected. In the Spirit and by the Spirit, we can move again together toward the good on God's terms. So what does this mean for us then, say on a Tuesday in Greenville? In the year of our Lord, 2023, how does this apply? What do we do with this? At the very least, we must keep the Pentecost reality, this reversal actually in front of us to see ourselves, to see the details of our everyday lives in terms of what God has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. For our sakes, for the sake of the world He loves. We see others, this is, it cashes out in this, just in this way too, we see others not as adversaries to our projects, but as those often captive to empty imitation and to futile projects of their own that run against the grain of goodness. We see them as those for whom Jesus died and to whom the Spirit has come and will come, Lord willing to redeem their lives and their efforts. We want to be the city and the people who are holding forth a power and a security and a transcendence and a goodness that is so incredibly attractive that people cannot resist. In fact, we want to look like the church when the Spirit was first poured out in this particular way. So we must keep our hearts fixed on God's greater purpose. I mean, this is how it how it just cashes out, really. We 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 keep our hearts fixed on his greater purpose amid the grind of our lives and our work, which is not glamorous. Because what we're doing, wherever we are, no matter how mundane it seems to be, it's connected to this project. All our projects, all we invest in our friendships and in our workplaces and the cities we call home, it's all work for another kingdom by the power of the Spirit. For the good of our city and the glory of God as our end. It's redeemed. Friends of the world needs people who aren't under the constant compulsion to prove and preserve themselves. 
feel like I need to do a preacher thing and say that again. The world needs people who aren't under the constant compulsion to prove and preserve themselves. To assuage our insecurity and compete with our peers in building our towers. The world needs a community of the Spirit united by faith, hope, and love. This is the gift that the Holy Spirit is giving the world through us. And here's what I want to close with. It's a picture of the end or of the ultimate. John, in Revelation 21, he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our disconnect has been healed. Our language has been restored. Our hopes have been fulfilled. And then in chapter 22, he says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What do we see? We see a city. And we see a garden wrapped around that city, bringing life and healing. We see a people united in worship whose gaze is fixed on the face of God and whose delight, whose Eden is restored. There they are. There we are, reigning not over fragile, decadent kingdoms, but reigning with God again to our everlasting comfort and joy. This is the inheritance, friends, and the hope uh, that the Spirit has already come to deposit in our hearts and by which we are called to live He's depositing it in our hearts so that we can, with that deposit, make something with our hands and redeem our collective desires and our efforts beginning right here. And listen, it's rarely prestigious. Quite the opposite. But it's always glorious. Even when it feels as small as standing in a line of open hands and hearts, waiting in faith for another deposit of the kingdom whose architect and builder is God. Because He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. It might not feel that way right now, but with the Spirit in our hearts, let's fix our eyes on the city. Because that's our inheritance, and that's what God is already doing in us. Do you believe it? Lord, by Your Spirit, we need help to constantly believe it and to live according to it. Unite us together, Lord, with one voice of worship, one voice of truth. Unite us with all the saints before us and those who will come after us as we await the glory of your kingdom and we await that city. We believe in it. We trust in you. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.